Hello, my friends. Welcome to Detox Podcast. I'm Denise Walker, your host. This is the very last episode of season one, uh, which is essentially just volume one of Pick Your Poison. And then we'll be moving on to Pick Your Poison volume two. And I know it's been a few weeks, but I'm happy to be here, happy to be speaking to you through my microphone here. And I'm excited to get into this episode. It's called Alkul, which is said to be a Arabic word for body-eating spirit. Uh, we'll get into that as we go. I'm going to be talking about cognitive dissonance, impulse control, um, and that kind of stuff uh, throughout this episode. Uh, if you would like a copy of Pick Your Poison Volume 1 and or Volume 2, uh, it's not necessary to follow along, but if you're enjoying my poetry and you'd like to support me that way, you can buy it on Amazon or you can buy it from my website, denisewalkerspeaks.com or cityandsoul.ca is where I also have my books. Um, or you can buy it in person through me or at City and Soul. Yeah, let's get into it. This poem, I'll read it here for you. Alcool. I've been having thoughts, dark ones, the kind that sneak in on your way down the basement stairs like a sinister draft that grabs your ankles. The most recent, how our bodies can function just fine, pumped full of poison, drained of nutrients, deprived of sleep. That scares the shit out of me. How can we withhold all goodness and instead pour chemical after chemical into us and still think and walk and breathe? Something so flammable cannot be human. You've heard we're made of water, but truth is we're made of ghosts, spirits, bottled liquid darkness that haunt the living. So what evils are we capable of? There's lots there. Uh, Alcool was a concept that somebody posted in a in our hip sobriety Facebook group. Um, that was the recovery program I did. It was online. We had this Facebook group of all of us who were in the same class together. And someone had posted this photo with this caption about how alcohol is uh, derived from the Arabic word alkul, which meant body-eating spirit. And it had this photo, this sketched drawing of this person holding a bottle and then out of the bottle was this dark sort of liquid substance that had kind of like penetrated this person's eyes and mouth and had just like taken over their soul essentially and there's a really cool like beautifully dark sketch um i was very um enraptured by it but after some investigation it's there's a lot of like opinion pieces about alcool meaning body eating spirit and uh being the root of the word alcohol uh but when you do a deeper search and people who actually speak arabic uh say that that's not true it doesn't actually mean that um but yeah, so it, but the whole point of these opinion pieces that I was reading was that it was saying that when you drink alcohol, essentially it opens up your body and your soul to then be penetrated 
and possessed by evil spirits. These body-eating spirits that come in and um, make you do unspeakable things and act completely out of character. And it's this sort of spiritual explanation for why we act so out of character while we are intoxicated. And that would be really nice, you know, to say, oh, I was just possessed by a demon. Uh, so I'm not accountable for any of my actions, which, yeah, like I said, would be nice, uh, but is most likely not the case of what's happening, neurologically speaking. And so we have these things that we do when we're drunk, right? It's <laughs> our impulse control is completely inhibited, perhaps not completely, but, but severely more and more as the intoxication level goes up and we end up doing things, saying things, um, making these decisions that seem super out of character. Like as a sober person, we never would have done them. And I want to talk about today also this concept of drunk words or sober thoughts, because that's always rubbed me the wrong way. And I'll get into why. A little bit about this poem here, the first little part, it says that kind that sneak on your way down the basement stairs and grab your ankles. These stairs are like my best friend's stairs when we were growing up. They were see-through, like there was no backing to the stairs. It went down into the crawl space. So somebody could be like hiding under there and could grab your ankles as you descended the stairs. It was always really creepy to go down. And so as soon as I, uh, this just, this imagery just popped into my head when I was writing this poem and it always freaked me out as a kid. And yeah, it just reminds me of, of how you're just walking and like maybe it's time to go to bed in your house and you turn off all the lights and you're walking from I have to like turn off the lights in my kitchen and then walk in the dark all the way to my bedroom and I'm always there's always this fear that there's like a ghost and I I tell myself like ghosts aren't real I don't know if you believe in ghosts but I don't know if I do I've never seen a ghost I've never had any sort of experience like that to make me believe in them I don't I'm not gonna rule it out but <laughs> I I just try to tell myself like oh well it's, there's not actually anything there you're safe you're fine but it's like intrusive thoughts I can't make myself not think that there is something malicious lurking in the shadows and so this is what this poem is is talking about it's like something that you can't really see you can't even uh predict or prove that it's there but it's just these dark thoughts that keep intruding into my mind i'm talking about how we can drink this actual poison like alcohol is actually a poison think about how you feel when you're hungover. your body is trying to recover from being like ridiculously assaulted by this toxin and it's trying to get rid of the toxin it's trying to heal the cells that were damaged by the toxin you just feel like garbage right like you <laughs> you've been you've poisoned yourself like it's you're not supposed to feel like that after you eat something like if you were to eat a food 
and then you felt like that the next day, you'd be like, oh, fuck, like I shouldn't have had that. There was something wrong with that, right? Like we've been so trained by this societally accepted substance that like a hangover is like a hilarious, funny thing. I was just remembering the other day that uh, I was in Barcelona when I was like 23 or something. And I had this really wild night and a lot of really crazy stuff happened. And my best friend who I went with was super mad at me because he didn't, we both had different perceptions of what happened that night. And like, there were times when we weren't even in the same place physically. And then in the morning we came together to share what the night was like for us. And we were mad at each other, but then we realized there was no reason to be mad because all of this stuff had happened that actually had nothing to do with each other. We just didn't understand what was actually happening because we were so intoxicated. And we were laughing hysterically together about our pain, about how hungover we were, how crazy the night was, all the shit that happened, that we had become so mad at each other for nothing. And we're just like crying, we're laughing so hard. And I was like, wow, I really used to laugh so hard at my pain. And it was like a bonding experience. How many times? Do you think that you've went on like some sort of road trip with friends or or had a wild night with friends and the next day you go for brunch and you laugh about how shitty you feel? And I'm thinking now, that's a little fucked up. You're literally helping yourself to alleviate the badness of what this really is. You are helping to shove it under the rug even more that there that there might be something wrong with this. And so as I go through this poem, I start saying how our bodies can function, how we can think, we can walk, we can breathe, even though for years, lifetimes, people pour this stuff into their bodies and it happens so gradually, right? We, we do it and we sort of titrate our systems with this chemical over and over and over that it, the changes and our baseline happens to change so slowly and so gradually that we don't really notice that something's different. Especially with like our emotions or our reactions to things or, or how our body feels. So when we've constantly been poisoning ourselves slowly but surely, um we don't notice right away that something's wrong because we've just been exposing ourselves a little bit at a time it's almost like i don't know if you've watched the vampire diaries um or like any sort of vampire show they're like the the trope is always that these vampires are the good vampires they don't drink human blood they drink animal blood or um they drink something else, you know, they're just like, they're trying to stay off the thing that they're addicted to. I think that vampirism in itself is just like a big uh, commentary on addiction. So you have a lot of these characters and some of them, what they'll do is they'll take little drops of human blood to sort of like 
um, acclimatize themselves to it so that when they're exposed to it, they're not like um, completely overwhelmed by the addictive properties or uh, they're not completely overwhelmed with the the stark difference between this animal blood and human blood and they've sort of just like be letting themselves get get used to it and it's kind of the same thing as like taking a little bit of poison or it's almost like certain types of vaccines that have like part of the dead virus inside of them that when you take them your body can then produce antibodies for it and the whole thing is that you're just slowly exposing yourself to it so the body's not shocked by it. And this is sort of what's happening with alcohol. We're doing this so frequently and just so gradually that we don't realize how awful we finally feel once we kind of come to that, that to the head of it. You could call it your bottom, even like rock bottom or a high bottom. And if you don't know what I mean by that, it's the the kind of the turning point, that moment where you say, okay, enough is enough. I've got to do something about this. I've got to address this addiction that I have and finally start making steps to correcting it. I rewiring my brain out of this addictive cycle. And so <laughs> I ask, at the end of this poem, I ask, so what evils are we capable of? If we can slowly destroy our bodies, but have them still function at a high enough level that we don't really notice that something's wrong, like what, like what, what's the limit, you know? Like what can't we put ourselves through that we don't bounce back from? How do we create a proper boundary or threshold to keep ourselves safe and to keep ourselves healthy when our body is so capable of of processing shit trauma chemicals thoughts relationships there's so many aspects of toxic things whether it be like a toxic relationship you find yourself in, that's another thing, right? Like you, it's kind of like the frog um, being boiled alive, right? You, I don't know if you're familiar with that metaphor, but it's essentially you put the the frog in the water and slowly the you you turn the water on to cook the frog, and the frog doesn't realize it's being cooked alive because the water gradually gets hotter and hotter, and it starts to it just acclimatizes as it goes, and before you know it, it's too late. You're already in the boiling water and you're already starting to die. So it's any situation we find ourselves in. Alcohol, any other drug, toxic relationships, a job you hate, whatever. Any sort of toxic situation, we don't we all know, we all grow up knowing that like these things aren't good for us, but we don't really realize that we're in them until we get to this moment, this like turning point where we're like, wait a minute, I don't think I'm supposed to feel this way. <laughs> and there's so many things in our lives that help us to try to convince ourselves that everything's okay. We, in um, alcohol culture, we have so much, uh, so much 
propaganda that tells us that alcohol is good. Alcohol is um, something that makes us feel better. It's a way to relax. It's a stress relief. It's a celebrant. It's a it's something that will just make your life better in any way. That's certainly not true. We know that. And we know about um, abusive relationships. We know about um, you're not you're not supposed to go into a dead end job that you hate. You're supposed to do something that you love. But here we are. We find ourselves there anyway. Right. It's it's so easy so easy to be in these situations and there's a lot of shame and guilt that comes around that right we're like oh we should have known better but nobody teaches you the warning signs or like hey maybe you shouldn't drink after a hard day at work instead of being like oh, i need a drink after this day i've had you know like coworkers say that to each other all the time i hear it at my work Instead of encouraging each other to create addictive pathways in the brain, there should, there should be more education on how, like, that's exactly how addictions form. It's not at the fault of the person who's drinking alcohol. It's not that person's fault. Alcohol itself is an addictive substance. And so when you use it in specific situations, whether it be a good situation or a bad situation, I mean, especially in bad situations because it helps with the dopamine hit and the relaxation por portion of it. We like we're we're just set up to fail, and it's not your fault. It's not my fault. It's how the whole thing is set up. Alcohol in itself is an inherently addictive, and that's just the end of it. So. There's a lot of shame and guilt that comes from this. And I want to talk about cognitive dissonance. So cognitive dissonance is the sense that essentially your beliefs and values and who you believe yourself to be aren't matching up with perhaps your thoughts, your words, or your actions. And we see this very clearly when we drink alcohol and we act in a way that we normally wouldn't we make out with a random person on the dance floor we cheat on our loved ones we spend money that we shouldn't we book crazy trips and when we're blackout and realize the next day that we've booked a trip we like we do a bunch of stuff that's completely out of character and we say things too that perhaps we never meant to say. And there's this thing that people like to say, and I swear I've only ever heard it in really judgy situations. People say that drunk words are sober thoughts. And that never felt true to me, especially as someone who was actively addicted to alcohol, I really, really rejected this, this idea that whatever I was doing when I was intoxicated was who I really was. It didn't feel true to me, and it felt really, really awful that other people thought that was the real me. And I'm here to tell you that it's not true. 
and it's not the real you. When we drink alcohol, alcohol severely diminishes the prefrontal cortex. This is the part of the brain that is in charge of choice and decision making. It is a very high level thinking part of the brain. It is something that takes in so much information and data and rules and weighs the risk and reward of everything. It, it weighs all of the consequences against the benefits. It has a huge job to do and it's intelligent and it's intuitive and it, it helps us make well-informed decisions. But when we use alcohol, that decision-making prefrontal cortex is super dimmed and we can no longer make well-informed decisions. And some might say, oh, well, this just takes us back to our animalistic instincts. And well, yeah, <laughs> before we had our like top brain, all these things like the prefrontal cortex and all the other stuff, the higher level thinking parts of the brain. We just had like the brainstem and the midbrain. These things that were governed by our animal instincts or lizard instincts or whatever you want to call them. Just very basic survival instincts where we have fight or flight, which was very important. We need to know if we were in danger and what to do in that situation. We had our survival instincts, which had to do with eating, sleeping, drinking water. And that was basically, and procreating, right? And so we have these very base level instincts. And so when we have no higher level thinking, which as sentient, lovely human <laughs> beings, to say that we're reduced back to those things is like a huge slap in the face to say that that's the real us. Because that's not us. It's not us. As I've said in previous podcast episodes, when we constantly use alcohol, it gets logged as a survival instinct in the midbrain. And the midbrain uh, then is more in control. The higher level thinking brain, the prefrontal cortex and all the other stuff. I'm not a neurologist, so forgive me. I don't know all the parts of the brain offhand. So there's a... <laughs> when we're addicted and it's at the end of the day, 5 or 6 p.m. rolls around, it's almost like we're on autopilot and it's really hard for us to keep that prefrontal cortex online to talk us out of stopping at the liquor store on our way home. Before you know it, you've driven and parked into the parking lot of the liquor store and you're like, oh, well, I'm here already. You know, <laughs> I'm sure that you, if you listening have had an addiction or are currently addicted to something, I'm sure you've experienced this where you try as you might to try to talk yourself out of doing it, you just can't. And that's not because you're weak. It's not because you're stupid. It's not because this is really what you want to do. It's because you're addicted and the midbrain has taken over. 
This is the action that is part of your survival toolkit and it must be completed in order for you to survive. The brain has overlearned and it's an overachiever. So it overlearned. When we do things when we're intoxicated, really horrible things that don't align with our values, they don't align with our beliefs and who we believe that we are, it causes cognitive dissonance. And this is like a very shredding, awful feeling to have. It causes a lot of shame and guilt. It causes isolation because how the heck do we admit that we've done this thing? Because it has, it's like we didn't even choose to do it. It just happened. People keep hammering this uh, so uh, drunken words or sober thoughts, drunken actions or sober thoughts thing to us over time. And we start to believe, oh my God, what if I truly am this horrible person? You know? And we harbor this thing that we've done. It's like this poisoned seed that is rotting from the inside out. There's a poem in Pick Your Poison Volume 2 called Taryn about this. So I won't get into this whole seed metaphor just yet. We'll get to that in the future. But when we are faced with these actions and these words and these things that we have done while we are intoxicated, the sober versions of ourselves can't reconcile who we are and what we've done. So what do we do? This is just the shit you did. It has nothing to do with who you actually are. You are not a terrible person. You are not a horrible person. It's just the shit you did. We have all done shit. There's two things we can do. We can either change our behavior to match our thoughts, or we can change our thoughts to alleviate the dissonance. I don't know if you've heard dissonance in music. Uh, when I was in high school, I was in... Um, an accelerated band program and our conductor would always have us play uh, dissonance notes where typically if you are playing um, a certain note if you play a full like two steps above that like in a chord so if you have a chord it sounds really nice when you play all of the notes in that chord together. But if you switch those notes so that you're playing just one step instead of two steps off, it has this sound and it's called dissonance. And it's these kind of like grinding, awful notes. And sometimes there's beauty in that. Sometimes if like the tuning is right and the volume is right and you lean into it, you can find the beauty in it. But at first you're like, oh my God, make it stop. And that's kind of what this process is like. First, 
you've done something that you can't reconcile. You're saying, I've done this horrible thing, but I'm not a horrible person. But if I've done this horrible thing, does it mean that I'm a horrible person? No, but it feels like that. And you don't know how to reach out to people because if you admit you've done this thing, then they'll know how bad you are, right? So you harbor it all alone and you feel worse about it because what happens when we're alone and we think about things? We overthink them and we get anxious and we get depressed and we get upset and we start going down this whole crazy rabbit hole of mindfuckery. And we're now in this mental prison that we've created and but it's not even just us creating it it's society creating it right because we've been taught so black and white that cheating is an unforgivable thing we've been taught that um certain behaviors and certain things you say and just there's certain black and white situations in life that cannot be forgiven based on society's rules and parameters and so when we actually do these things, it's like, well, what the fuck? I've done this thing. Now what? So there's this thing called shadow work. <laughs> so we have to change our thoughts around it. So if, let's say, okay, let's say you've cheated. We can investigate this. We can say, okay, what are my, like, what are my core beliefs around this? I've taught, I've been taught that cheating means that I don't love my partner. I've, I've been taught that it means that I am a horrible person who has no respect for other people and that and that if you've done this you now deserve to lose everything after this one singular moment your whole life is about to come crashing down and i'm not saying that cheating is good it's not good but it doesn't mean that you are evil this is something that you would have to do is to investigate all the reasons why this has happened and this kind of goes for anything let's say you you told a lie or you said some mean things to a friend or you just you acted i don't know selfishly where like there was this one night where it was really ridiculous actually um i was kind of in like a week-long panic attack basically my birth father i was meeting for the first time came to edmonton he lives in hamilton ontario and he came to edmonton for the first time when i was 23 years old and i was i thought i could handle it and i couldn't it was just so emotional for me and since i was in active addiction i didn't know what trauma was i didn't know what intergenerational trauma was and i i didn't know how to intuitively listen to my body or manage my emotions so i was living with my friend at the time 
and my birth dad came over. He, they were staying in a hotel nearby, and he came over, and I was just like really also I was <laughs> I was drinking a lot. He was drinking a lot. My other friends were staying the night because they worked early in the morning nearby. So I offered for them to stay, but I refused to go to bed. And my birth dad and I were just staying up drinking and like watching music videos. And my friends were like, Denise, you gotta send him home. And I'm like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Soon, 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 soon. And but I had no intention of doing that, right? Like I just wanted more time with my birth dad in this moment. And, um, but but they were like, we have to go to bed. It's like 2 a.m. I have to work in the morning. You said I could stay here, but now I can't go to sleep because I'm sleeping in your living room and you're in the living room. And eventually I just got like so angry. I sent my birth dad home to his hotel. I was so drunk. I like slammed the, um, the fridge and the, uh, the shelves all collapsed and all the food that was in the shelves like spilt onto the floor. My friend was like in tears asking me to please go to sleep. And her boyfriend for the first time, who's like a very, um, just like not a confrontational person like yelled at me because I was being really rude and selfish. And all my friends were so angry at me. And I was just angry because I didn't want to be told what to do. And so I finally go to sleep and I like threw a book at the wall and I was in my bedroom and ranting to people drunk and angry on Facebook. And the next day, it all came crashing down. I realized how ridiculous and awful I had been. I was being super inconsiderate. I had chosen just this stupid late night activity with this person I just met for the, um, I had chosen that over respecting my friends friends who had been there my entire life and I just like I felt awful I called my mom and like it was the first time in a long time that I had called my mom during something like that just a child looking for comfort from her mother and I cried and on the phone and was so upset and she was really helpful and consoled me. And I talked to my friend and it was like, I needed the forgiveness. I needed the forgiveness from the other person, someone else to absolve me of this pain that I had caused to tell me that it was okay, that it wasn't that big of a deal. Because to me in that moment, it was like everything I'm doing this whole drinking thing is starting to destroy my life. And I can start to see the seams coming apart. And it could be completely ripped to shreds any moment. And in hindsight, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but in the moment it really, really was. And there were so many moments like that, you know?
So the best thing to know is that like you are not evil. You're not inherently evil or bad. You are inherently good. Your addiction does not define you. The shit that you've done is just the shit you did. It doesn't have any governance over who you are as a person. Because when you are drunk, you are not yourself. These are not your, this is not your truth. The drunk or high or, you know, swayed by any sort of um, cyclical or addictive behavior is not, it's not the the true you. not and this is one of the wonderful wonderful gifts of sobriety is to realize that without this intoxicant without this poison blurring the lines and blurring the mind especially like when you're constantly in this cycle of um being intoxicated, then hungover, then intoxicated, then in hung, then hungover. It's like you're never really clear-minded. All of your energy when you're like quote unquote sober is going into like healing the damage that was caused, whether it be physical or emotional damage. And I don't know about you, but I like when you're hungover, you feel like anxious and sick and just not good. And so you're not you don't have a lot of this brain power to focus on the nuances of things. There's no space or clarity, especially with all the brain fog. Uh, there's, there's just like not a lot of clarity around situations that have happened. There's no time to like really gain space from them in order to observe them objectively. You're always in the middle of them. And so when we can enter sobriety, we gain this space. And instead of being reactive all the time, we can start to create a pause between when the situation happens. Perhaps it's a, like for me, an example in sobriety, I had this very strange situation where I had a friend where I was like kind of bullying her and like I consider myself to be a very kind compassionate person all my life I've been told Denise you're too nice you get walked all over you're too nice and so to be to be doing something that isn't nice didn't make any sense to me I couldn't wrap my head around it This is one of my biggest um, situations and experiences with cognitive dissonance. I started to, like every single time she would say anything or do anything, I would kind of, I would see it with this critical light. She couldn't share anything with me without me questioning her intentions. Like she would, I don't know, for an example, it'd be like share, she would share something that she's excited about and I would, be like, ah, oh, well, do you really want to do that? Or why do you want to do that? You know, instead of being like, oh, that sounds awesome. 
And I was like, why, why am I responding like that? That's cruel and weird and not like me at all. And honestly, I lost the friendship over it. Like she, she started to ghost me because I was being such a bitch. And like, I, I don't blame her. <laughs> um, but it was interesting because what I expected was for her to realize I was acting out of character and for her to see that, oh, why are you acting out of character? And like to investigate it further and to maybe even ask me, like if I, I feel like, oh, if I was a good enough friend to her, if we were really friends, she would actually ask me, hey, what's up? Why are you acting like this? But that's not always the case. You know, I kind of, I don't know if I really like this whole like, oh, well, if she was a really good, if she was actually a good friend, or if they were a really good friend, they would do this. Like, life is not black and white. We're all, we're all made from the tea that we're steeped in. That is what my therapist likes to say. Uh, he says that we see the world based on the tea that we're steeped in. And for her, I can go on forever about what tea I think that she's been steeped in, but it's, it's not even really something I can really grasp because I'm not her. Um, I don't think that she is much of a confrontational person. Um, I don't, and I don't think she handles um, being <laughs> attacked very well. <laughs> she's not the person who would just acknowledge that she's being attacked and be like, hey, like, what's up? Why are you acting like this? You know, which is completely fair. If someone were to attack me, I don't handle it very well either. I I usually shut down and it's my instinct to just like go away, to walk away, to leave. Because I don't really like confrontation. I don't like conflict. I don't like the dissonance of sitting in that. And I'm learning to because shoving things under the rug doesn't really work. So far, it's led to me losing friendships. <laughs> uh, so... Um, I'm, I'm practicing conflict, practicing speaking what's actually on my mind instead of harboring resentment. But in sobriety, I could see, I could like take time to look at that situation and instead of like reacting to it immediately, when she started to ghost me and leave and leave, I didn't, um, I was able to kind of analyze what was happening. I was able to, instead of just freaking out and maybe attacking her or like getting, if that happened and I was drinking, I would, maybe I would have gotten drunk and like said some really awful stuff to her. Who knows? But in sobriety, I... We have space to create a pause between a situation and a reaction. And we can also have this lovely tool of intuition of the self. And we can notice when things are wrong. And I could listen to this, okay, why is this person causing me to essentially bully her? Like, why, like, why am I doing that? 
and I looked at it and um, as a sober person, I found that she was quite a triggering entity for me because she drinks all the time. And she's very vocal about her drinking, posts it on social media all the time, um, tells stories about how she goes on hikes where she would, they would drink beer all the way up to the top of the hike and then share a Mickey of tequila at the top. And then I'm, then in my head, I'm going down this very critical and judgmental path of being like, okay, yeah, you're both drinking and then you drove after that. You drank beer all the way to the top, shared a Mickey, or sorry, you each had a Mickey of tequila at the top. And now after the hike, which like at most is like a three or four hour hike, you, you're getting in your car and now you're driving. And so every single thing, I then started putting this like really critical lens on things. And it was coming from a place of being triggered. I had to think, okay, I'm being triggered by this because she's drinking all the time. It's reminding me of the way I used to be and how I used to drink and how I, I mean, I, I never went on hikes and then drove my car just so we're clear. But I mean, if you, if you've done that, this isn't, this is, I'm not judging you here. I'm not saying that I'm judging her for drinking. I'm saying that I'm judging myself for drinking. And so I have this, like, I'm seeing so much of myself in her that it's really upsetting me to a point where it's not even like that's what's happening as a cognitive thought. It's like a a defense mechanism of the brain is already happening before I can even have thought about it. So what was happening is that I was building up defenses in my brain and my brain started to log her as an enemy like a threat and so every time she was coming at me whether it be you know to share a photo of a tattoo that she wanted to get or a trip she wanted to go on or something about her life or these hikes that she was going on i met it with defensiveness no matter what it was even if it wasn't threatening at all I just began to meet it with defensiveness. And it's interesting because this started to happen to one of my best friends as well. And I'm glad that I recognized that it was happening before it was too late with her. I was being triggered over time at the beginning of being triggered with a friend. The friend is triggering me slowly but surely over time. And then eventually my brain just put up walls. It was like, this is no longer safe. You are being triggered every single time with this person, even though it wasn't every single time, right? It just started to learn that this was a dangerous interaction sometimes. And so it it didn't even, it turned off the filter and just was like, nope, no more from this person. The doors are closed. And so every time they would come at me with a, something happy and wanting to share and be excited, I would be like, "Mm -mm, nope, gonna shut that down. So I think this is a, this was a really powerful realization for me, which I would have never, ever gotten to if I hadn't been sober. I recognize that 
all of these defensivenesses, <laughs> defensivenesses, I don't know if that's the word, but uh, defenses came up because of being sober and in recovery. And these people were triggering me because I was in recovery. But that's not to say that there wouldn't be other situations in my life that I found triggering outside of being in recovery, right? Like these did have to do with alcohol, but there could have been other reasons based on the tea that I've been steeped in that could have triggered me and this response could have happened anyway. And so if I wasn't in sobriety, I wouldn't be able to see these clearly. And I wouldn't have been able to do the work to notice the very like nuanced aspects of this. It would have just been like, why is this person such a bitch? I don't want to be friends with them anymore. And then I would have terminated the friendship. I would have walked away. It would have been too hard and felt too bad. And so that being said, being in sobriety and recognizing that there are all these reasons that people do the things that they do. There's all these reasons that I do the things that I do. The more compassion that I can have for myself and the things that I've done that don't line up with my beliefs and values, yet I feel compassion and love for myself anyway, and I say, Denise, like these things, yeah, they were shitty. But you did them and you can't change that. There's nothing you can do to change the past. But you can have compassion for yourself. And the more that we love ourselves and the less that we judge ourselves, the less shitty things we'll do in the future. And I say that because in the future, you might do shitty things still. It, you probably will. We all do shitty things all the time. It's just normal. It's just like, just because society has labeled it as bad, right? And so we have these things and it's in the, in the shadow aspect of the self. So this is what happens. We take this thing that we believe to be bad. Let's say it's being angry. We think that anger is bad and it's a bad way to express yourself and it just hurts people. And so you should never express anger. It's a useless emotion. And this is true. This is what I have believed in the past. And so I, not true. I mean, it's true of me, true of my beliefs in the past. And so I noticed that I was being very agitated by other people's anger. If they started to get angry, I got super uncomfortable and like wanted to get the fuck out of there. And I wanted to tell them to stop it, but I couldn't because I'm conflict adverse. As I said, I'm working on it. I'm actively trying to engage, not, okay, that sounds bad. I'm actively trying to step into conflict when the, when the conflict arises. I'm not trying to create opportunities for conflict. Um, even though I think I've made the mistake of perhaps doing so by wanting to step into this conflict. I, I may have done that over the past couple of weeks, but I'm learning, okay? I'm learning. I have compassion for myself. And so anger, very uncomfortable for me to be around. And so I think, okay, well, why is this? Why is it so difficult for me 
to be around this really intense anger. So I think, okay, well, yeah, like I grew up with a bipolar father who like sometimes would get angry out of nowhere, but it wasn't like that often. And I think perhaps it could do the, do some some with that. But then I think, okay, in, I, in my youth, I had two best friends and a lot of the time they would do something that would make me angry. And so I would get angry about it. And then they would say, Denise, like, don't take this so personally. Like, oh, can't you take a joke? And every time I got shot down because of my anger, I wasn't heard, I wasn't seen, and I didn't feel safe. And so I just learned, oh, I guess anger is an inappropriate response to being upset, and it's probably actually my fault. And so I started to repress my anger and suppress it. And over time, you know, I would find myself in these situations where I'd be, I'd be pretty pissed off, but I wouldn't do anything about it, you know? And... I mean, this could tie in too to this whole like sort of like bullying of my friends thing where I would feel feelings of anger and I wouldn't say anything based on their actions. And eventually, this is the thing with a shadow, what you repress, you project. So what that means is that if you shove this anger down, eventually it'll just start like spilling out it's kind of like the idea of like you know you know those people perhaps it's you who don't get angry don't get angry don't get angry and then they explode it's like this volcano that underneath is the pressure is building the pressure is building the pressure is building and then suddenly it erupts and it's like this hot mess of molten lava magma spilling out, you know, destroying the land, destroying the trees and the life. <laughs> uh, but I'm working on that. That's what I'm working on actively is anger. So when we catalog something like anger, perhaps as a bad thing, it's bad, it's evil, it's the wrong thing to do, it's not an appropriate response. We say, like black and white, anger is bad, and calm, collected, chillness is good. There's no gray area. That's when we get into a little bit of trouble with these like bad things that we've done. Because it doesn't matter what it is, if you along your timeline have cataloged this as bad, you will and you do one of these bad things, which I guarantee you, you will do if you if you repress it and you push that thing down and you try to avoid it as much as you possibly can, you eventually will engage in this and then you will think that you're a horrible person because you've engaged in this. And it will be difficult and you'll experience cognitive dissonance and you'll think that you're like this evil monster, which is not true. You are the whole deal. We all are the whole package. We are the entire spectrum, the entire spectrum of humanity. Just some parts are turned up in others and other parts and others are turned down. And we're just these different things. I don't know if you've seen Westworld, um, but like essentially these are like robots, right? In this, 
amusement park where you get to just like be whatever you want to be and like you can kill people and like i don't know and they don't die because they're robots so you get to enact out your like most primal fantasies essentially and all the robots like they're they're programmed based on this like it has like a panel and it says like oh promiscuity and it's like, like turned way up and all the people who are in the brothel and suggestibility is like turned way up and like um some people are like quite um aggressive and some people are really passive and just like these little dials that are turned up and turned down like sound on a soundboard or things like that you know so my friends you are good you are innately good the things that you do do not rob you of your goodness forgive yourself i know sometimes it can be really hard but you're deserving of it no matter what you've done you don't need to beat yourself up about it learn and move forward with compassion and love and grace. I believe in you. And I believe in me. It's not who you are, it's just the shit you did. I'll read this poem once more for you. And the next time it's gonna be Pick Your Poison Volume 2! It's wild. <laughs> Al cool. I've been having thoughts, dark ones, the kind that sneak in on your way down the basement stairs, like a sinister draft that grabs your ankles, the most recent, how our bodies can function just fine, pumped full of poison, drained of nutrients, deprived of sleep, that scares the shit out of me, how can we withhold all goodness and instead pour chemical after chemical into us, and still think and walk and breathe, something so flammable cannot be human, You've heard we're made of water, but truth is we're made of ghosts, spirits, bottled liquid darkness that haunt the living. So, what evils are we capable of?